Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I hope your week's been going well. I'm so glad we have this time uh, together for the next couple of hours. It's going to be uh, great. I'm excited uh, to uh, bring on my first guest, um, Reverend John uh, Ravel. I'm, oh, this is going to be an interesting uh, time with uh, Reverend uh, John Ravel. He is a chaplain for Stanford, Westport, Connecticut uh, Police Departments. He's also the lead chaplain of Lifeline Chaplaincy. Hope I said that right, John. You did. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, so you're a busy guy. This is uh, usually it's one chaplain per department, isn't it? And you're hogging them all. Well, in in New England, there's not the same perspective on spiritual things as in other parts of the country. Uh, New England has the dubious distinction of being one of the darkest segments of our nation from a spiritual standpoint. Uh, Pew Research released some numbers back uh, four years ago and ranked all 50 states based on their being faith-friendly. Obviously, the Bible Belt, they were at the top. Connecticut came in at number 47. Wow. And, yeah, and uh, the surrounding states uh-huh. rounded out the bottom five. So chaplaincy is not a, a known entity in New England. Uh, in my my approach to chaplaincy is more like that of the militaries of deployment, where I spend time with the troops on an ongoing basis and get to know them so that when bad things happen, they know me and we can talk. So it's not the same as being a chaplain, say, here in Minneapolis, where there are multiple chaplains. This is kind of a pioneering perspective there. But yes, I have been busy. Yeah, uh, these have way. been interesting days. Yeah. So when you speak to other chaplains around the country, how much of the department uh, participates with their chaplain? It depends on the city and it depends on, on the makeup. Some mm-hmm. some departments have uh, token chaplains who are there to to pray over ceremonies and, and uh, in Catholic settings to provide ashes on Ash Wednesday. But there are some departments where uh, the chaplains are very much involved. Yeah. Some of the metropolitan cities that I've connected with, their chaplains are vital components of the departments. And they are there on a regular basis. And the officers get to know them and and they earn a level of trust so that when the dark aspects of the job, when police officers have to face evil mm-hmm. on a regular basis... And it's it's very ugly. It's it's uh, it's very difficult. And so there are some departments across the country that have some excellent chaplains who are there to be available to listen and to care for those police officers in such times. Mm-hmm. John, I'm guessing you not only know the names of a lot of the officers, but I bet you know the names of their spouses and probably even their kids. Uh, in my area, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, with Stan- I started with Stanford uh, almost ten years ago. And some of the officers are like family. And, I bet they are. Yeah, we've we've we have them into our homes on a annual basis. Just before Christmas, we have a an annual cops Christmas chili dinner. Uh, my wife Debbie, who's a vital partner in this ministry, cooks up a, a couple of cauldrons of chili, and, <laughs> and the cops come in that throughout the, the course of the day. 
and uh, we've had families come in, and, and so yeah, it's with a number of them, it, we're we're close to the whole family. Mm-hmm. What is the condition right now? The mental health of some of the officers uh, in your area? The, I would say it's in our area, but it's in a lot of the, the departments across the country. There is a level of alarm mm-hmm. and concern uh, and frustration. What a lot of folks don't realize is that police officers from the very outset are trained to save lives and to do good. They are there to protect the innocent citizens. And they go into it knowing full well that they could lose their lives in protecting the innocent and opposing the hardcore criminal activity that's out there. Sometimes I think we lose sight of the reality that there are criminals who are have they're not hesitant in the least to kill others, including children. And police officers realize going into it that they are putting their lives on the line in order to protect the the innocent citizens. And many of these officers, their hearts are so beautiful, they devote much of their time, they volunteer their time to help people in the community, people of color, lower income folks. And it doesn't get any fanfare. It doesn't get any newspaper articles or television coverage. But they do it on their own, and they don't seek any kind of praise or recognition for it. So they've trained themselves. They've been trained to save lives, to oppose uh, hardcore criminals, and then to be labeled as evil and to be labeled as individuals who are out to kill and maim and destroy and and have that category thrust upon them across the board, it's disheartening. It's discouraging. And in some states, there are active measures being enacted that place greater restrictions on them and, in some cases, are placing them at higher risk. And so it's it is an incredibly uh, difficult and frustrating time for a lot of officers. You know, John, I think every young man that I've, I've spoken to when they were uh, a teenager and they were pursuing a career in either law enforcement or the fire department, they saw those jobs as a place where they could possibly be a hero someday, where they would save someone from a burning house or protect someone from a dangerous criminal. And they have pursued those careers because they do want to help people. Yeah. And, when, and the t- when the tides get turned and they get... Um, looked as as the opposition and, and the bad guys, it's got to be just heart-crushing. Oh, it is. Uh, and I see it on the faces of so many officers. Sometimes it's the mindset of, why bother? Why put myself at risk? Why put my family at risk? I know of a police officer in Connecticut whose uh, child at school was threatened by other children because they knew his father was a, a police officer. Mm. And his this child's life was threatened because his father was a, a police officer. And so these are difficult times indeed. But I'm standing, I'm, I go to roll calls lineups and I talk to, to cops one-on-one and I encourage them that God has an amazing track record of taking individuals who will stand for what's right in the face of, of opposition, even at great risk to their lives, mm-hmm. 
he takes that effort and he accomplishes really good things out of it. And in some cases, I've had the opportunity to point even to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was wrongfully accused. He was maligned. He was the victim of an unjust, an unjust uh, process with the, the Jewish court. And he died for wrong, being wrongfully uh, accused. But he did it voluntarily. But he stood against the spiritual opposition, and he sacrificed his life, obviously for our good, to pay the penalty for our sins so we could be reconciled. But look at what God did through that, our reconciliation, making it possible for our sins to be forgiven. And so that's part of my, uh, my encouragement to police officers is continue to do the right thing even if it's unpopular, this is where faith comes in. Trust God to accomplish his purposes in and through it. Now, on the other hand, where there are police officers who should not be officers, if there are police officers who break the law, all the officers I know say they should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. One of the phrases that we've heard many times, nobody hates a bad cop worse than a, or more than a good cop. I, I bet. Uh, good cops see this kind of scenario, and they're appalled and they're discouraged. There are upwards of or more than 700,000 full-time sworn officers in the United States dealing with hundreds of millions of incidents every year. And less than 1,000 individuals lose their – citizens lose their lives in the course of that. So – You've got 99 point something something percent of Mm -hmm. law enforcement officers who never have to be involved in this kind of situation. So the the vast majority of officers are doing really good things. Those that should not be police officers need to be removed. Mm -hmm. Those who have not been trained adequately, and sometimes bad things happen because of poor training, they need to be trained. Those who break the law they need to be prosecuted. But that's just like every other segment of society. Yeah, no kidding. Reverend John Ravel is my guest. He's a chaplain for several police departments out east, and he is uh, also an author. We're not going to get to that quite yet because I still have more police questions, but he's also uh, written a book in a series. Uh, This one is Yet I Will Rejoice, the testimonies of five Bible personalities who survived in times of doom and despair. God Alone, the testimony of Rahab. We'll get to that a little bit later, but we're going to take a break. When we come back, I think we'll have some more police talk because I'm enjoying this. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Reverend John Ravel as my guest. He is a chaplain uh, with the Stamford Westport, Connecticut uh, State Police and Department, and also the lead chaplain of Lifeline Chaplaincy, and he's also an author. But I still have a lot of uh, police questions, if you don't mind. <laughs> of course not. Yeah, I didn't think so. Uh, we were talking before we started our interview about uh, moral injury. I'd love for you to talk about that. Sure. That concept comes out of the military. Uh, they mental health professionals with the the military were seeing veterans return from overseas with PTSD-like symptoms, but they were not fitting the standard mold. 
they had not been involved in some of the carnage and some of the horrific scenarios, but they were still struggling. And so as they started investigating, they found that some of these soldiers had been exposed to scenarios that were extreme, gross violations of their moral codes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see a 12-year-old with a AK-47 about to shoot at one of your your team members. You've got to take him out. And even though you might be able to justify it in your mind, in your heart, you think, I've just killed a child. And so there's an injury to the soul, mm-hmm. spiritual injury. Or uh, a drone pilot has to drop ordnance on a compound, knowing full well that there are two or three children there. But it, it's necessary. And so... They started processing that and recognizing that chaplains were the primary line of of uh, assistance for soldiers who had gone through that. I saw the parallel with uh, police officers. We all recognize the reality of physical trauma. One of the first situations I responded to when uh, I became chaplain in Stanford was an officer who was involved in a horrific accident and he almost lost his life. The chief called and asked if I would go. He had a wife and three small children and God saved him and he recognized that God did that. But there was some physical trauma involved that he is still trying to recover from. We recognize emotional trauma. You see a horrific accident. Uh, You see uh, children who perish in accidents or in fires. Uh, That it takes a serious toll emotionally. But now we're starting to recognize that there is also soul trauma. When officers have to respond to a situation, and just some of the things that I've known where, and this officer has given me permission to share, and he actually has shared it on my behalf, an officer who has to do an investigation in child porn, and he has to view the images in the videos and see uh, infant children being abused sexually. Uh, a normal mind cannot see that and be unaffected. It took an incredible toll on him. Sandy Hook, you have these children who are uh, are slaughtered. That's a, a moral, that's not just a, 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 uh, an emotional struggle. It is a moral soul struggle. And so I started seeing the, the crossover and it seems like on a regular basis, our police officers, I, I can guarantee you here in the, the Twin City area, police officers are dealing with child molestation and those kinds of situations. Uh, children who are being killed, a father takes the life of his two children and takes his own life, uh, murder-suicide. They see that, and the natural inclination is to try and bottle it up and just not talk about it and forget about it. And that destroys the, the heart and the soul. I've introduced this, this topic, and every veteran police officer that I've talked to, when I start sharing about it, their eyebrows go up and their heads start nodding, and they said, you're right, you're right. And so I've, I've had the opportunity to uh, make a, a one-hour presentation in a number of law enforcement uh, departments and scenarios and actually, the New Haven Police Department has invited me to come and teach it at their their new class of, of cadets. But it is a it's a reality that honestly I, I wish more citizens were aware of, and more Christians were aware of, and would be praying for their police officers because 
law enforcement officers see the deepest, darkest evils that can be possibly imagined or conceived in a human mind, and they have to address those evils. And if there is not a spiritual groundwork, a, uh, a, a support system, then it takes a toll that can, if not addressed, can destroy their lives. In, in our part of Connecticut, the suicide rate among police officers over the last three years has been three times that per capita, uh, of, per capita of police officers, three times that of law enforcement officers across the country. And I really believe it's because of the, the spiritual darkness that they have to encounter on a regular basis. Now, John, when you, as a chaplain, don't you get called to scenes of crimes or or scenes where there's been a a suicide? Aren't you putting yourself in in that harm's way as well? Do you do that occasionally? Uh, Yeah. Um, And even when I don't attend, when you hear an officer go through a very vivid description of what they've seen, uh, the the danger is still there. Uh, it's uh, it is a is recognized among counselors as as a secondary trauma, if you will. And so, yeah, I have to have my own support system uh, in place. And I have some other uh, chaplains that I stay in touch with, and we kind of support each other and we debrief with each other. Honestly, uh, I have said it several times. My wife and my sweetheart is my greatest asset in that regard. She has been gifted by God uh, to be able to listen to me and to uh, help us uh, walk through some of the struggles together. So if an officer witnesses a, a horrific evil and you, you, said, you said, well, when is, he supposed, when is he or she supposed to get over that? I think the answer would obviously be never. Right. I think what you would say is we have to help them find a way to manage this pain. Yeah. Because that would be something I think you live with your whole life. Yeah, it is. There are some traumas and there are some struggles that you never totally get over, but you can learn to manage and you yes. can process. Uh, you lose a, a loved one. The grief is can seem daunting yes. initially. But if you have the right kind of resources, you can learn to live with it. The same is true with physical trauma, emotional trauma, and spiritual or moral trauma. Uh, if someone will take advantage of resources, and what I'm finding, I've, I've seen this unfold many times. Uh, when we were getting our marriage counseling 41 years ago, uh, the, the dear pastor who was counseling us said something that stuck in our minds, says, a joy shared is doubled. A burden or a grief shared is halved. Mm. Our mindset is if we have a struggle, I'm going to take it on myself and I'm going to soldier through and I'm, I'm going to do it. God didn't make us that way. Mm-hmm. Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens. And so I've seen that applied in this kind of scenario. When someone who has been exposed to that level of uh, trauma, whether it's emotional or soul trauma, just being able to talk through it has a, a healing effect of lifting the burden. They know somebody is aware. They know that someone understands the situation. They know someone cares enough about them to listen and then to pray for them. Now, sometimes more clinical 
uh, resources are necessary. Uh, it's I have needed to refer folks to to clinical counseling, but oftentimes just being able to talk about it and share that burden makes it bearable. I also think too, John, when you have officers that are dealing with uh, everyday occurrences in law enforcement. They're listening to people most often tell them a lie. How, you know, how long? No, no. Everybody out there tells the oh, truth wait, all the time. Then I'm wrong. Then yeah, I'm wrong. Yeah. yeah they, nobody. T- we are surrounded by truth tellers. Of course. <laughs> but I mean, how psychologically wearing is it to be always being told a story, which yeah. you have to go, I don't know if this is true. It probably is not. Yeah. I mean, psychologically, I think that'd be exhausting. It is. And it can make, not all police officers are like this, but it can make police officers cynical because they have heard people be just flat out deceptive. And even when all of the evidence is is presented, they still try to lie. And it's not until they can't get out of it, they say, okay, I, I was lying. Yeah, They deal with that all the time. I know they do. And it's easy to... The temptation is to draw the conclusion that everybody out there is like that. Mm-hmm. It's not uncommon for a police officer, law enforcement officer, to become cynical of the general population. One of the things that I encountered when I first became a chaplain was some people having an open cynicism to clergy. And then in talking with some, I found out that some of them grew up as Catholic, and they were actually sexually abused by a priest, or they had to investigate priests Mm -hmm. who had sexually abused children, or they had to investigate uh, priests or clergy who had uh, stolen money. And so it's easy to, when you deal with a small segment of the population who are like that, it's easy to draw the conclusion that everybody's like that. Yeah, you bet it is. Reverend uh, John Ravel is my guest. He's a chaplain for several police departments out east, and he's also an author. We're going to get to that after the break, and we're going to be back in 90 seconds. Radio is a media outreach of University of Northwestern St. Paul. Our mission is to lead people to Christ and to nurture believers in their faith through Christ-centered media. We do that by providing relevant Bible preaching and family-focused teaching, along with interactive talk programming that helps you in your daily life and points us all back to Jesus. You can also find helpful articles and podcast links for many topics on our website, myfaithradio.com. the show. Reverend uh, John Ravel is my guest. He's a ch- police chaplain 
And boy, he's uh, coming alongside the men and women in blue and uh, walking out their days, their lives, their incidences with them. And uh, what a job that is and uh, what a what a missionary work that is, John. I, when I first got into it, it didn't occur me occur to me that that's what it was. But yes, it is indeed. Yeah. All right. I think the Lord laid something in your in your head called uh, this building community uh, issue. Would you talk about that? I would love to. About uh, four years ago, uh, almost five years ago now, I it was September 11th of uh, 2015. I was addressing a men's group about the challenges of law enforcement. And president of that group was a senior vice president of communications of a local Fortune 500 company. And afterwards, he said, I'd like to talk to you. And so I went up to his office there in Stanford. And he said, our philanthropic strategy, and most large corporations have a community or philanthropic approach. He said, ours is we go into communities and we do repair work on homes of low-income folks who can't afford it. And this was right after the Black Lives Movement had started, and there was a heightened level of tension between law enforcement and, and certain populations, certain communities then. And he said, what if we get police officers involved with that? And I said, I think that's a great idea. And so we did a, a trial, a pilot program there in Stanford in November that year, and it was great. And then the next year, they uh, they purchased another large uh, company that took their their presence nationwide. And they said, would you be willing to be our liaison with police departments across the country to do this? And I said, absolutely. And we came up with a strategy on Friday night. We would have a dinner where we brought the police officers and the, the community together for a dinner, just fun and fellowship, no lectures, nice. no – no point finger pointing saying you need to do this or that. And as it unfolded, it, those became uh, or those were hosted by churches in those communities, primarily African-American communities. And then the next day, those officers join with community members to do a repair work in the homes of people in that community. And what we're finding is when two people voluntarily break bread together and then sweat together, it tears down barriers and it builds bridges our first one in that, on that level was in Charlotte, North Carolina, and it was only six months after their riots. In, uh, this was in April of 2016. And what we saw unfold with those community members, the chief came. Uh, chief Putney was a part of it. And seeing the family, the, the community members, seeing the police officers doing this. And I, in St. Louis, I was with the captain as we were working, and a community member came up and said, what are you doing? He, the captain said, well, we're helping repair these these three homes. And he said, why? And the captain said, because we care. And he said, really? And he said, absolutely. And I've had stories like that in, in – well, from that point through November of last year, we did 23 events in, in uh, 30 months in, in, like I said, Charlotte. We've been in Indianapolis, Cleveland, Ohio, Columbus, Cincinnati uh, – uh, St. Louis, uh, Ferguson, Missouri, and many others. And consistently what happens by when it's very common when the dinner starts on Friday night and you have a table of community members with one police officer at that table, there's a level of awkwardness. People aren't just ready to to relax and enjoy themselves. But we have a, a silly icebreaker where 
each table is competing against all the other tables. And within a few uh, moments, the whole mood lightens up and there's laughter. And in St. Louis, a couple of times back, the pastor was at one table and a lieutenant was at another table. And he said, wait a second, that table's cheating. (laughs) And then he said, oh, my gosh, that's the pastor's table. I'm going to hell. (laughs) And everybody started laughing. And by the end of the evening, it's like a family reunion. I have pictures. Uh, In Cleveland, there were 120 people there. And I've had the folks coming up. You see uh, these 75-year-old African-American uh, grandmother going up to a six foot five white cop and hugging him and say, you be careful because it's dangerous out there. And we're seeing this mm-hmm. all across the country. And I, I really do see that God is working through kingdom principles. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is laying out a series of kingdom principles, but he starts with the Beatitudes. And one of the points of the Beatitudes is blessed are the peacemakers. And I hear a lot of people talking about the need for peace, and there's peace wanters, and there's peace talkers, and you don't see a lot of people taking initiative to make peace. This is making peace. It's an important distinction. Yes. It's, it's easy to talk about the lack of peace and talk about we need to have peace and complaining that there's not enough peace. But this is a tangible step in that direction of making peace. And what happens is there are stereotypes all, all around. When police officers show up on a scene, it's seldom because they've been invited to the birthday party. And so when they get out of their, their vehicles, their squad cars, they usually have their game face on because they have to be prepared for literally any potentiality, mm-hmm. including somebody firing shots at them. So they're rarely smiling and being jovial. It's easy for the community, if they see that on a repeated basis, to draw the conclusion this is the way cops are. And the reverse of that, if police officers are going to a particular community on a repeated basis, they can draw the unfounded conclusion that everybody in the community is involved in this drug trafficking or this, this drug ring. When they come together in this kind of scenario, they see each other as sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. They see each other as people. And it's really difficult to harbor a bitter spirit for somebody when you're sitting across the table uh, sharing a meal with them and then laughing with them. Uh, so this that dinner tears down barriers. And then the next day, doing the repair work on the home, the, the biblical principle, the kingdom principle, further on down the verse in Matthew chapter 5, uh, after Jesus talks about being salt of the earth, he says, you are the light of the world. He says, let your light so shine among men that they would see your good works. Not your good worship services, not your your good buildings, uh, and those are necessary things. But he says, let them uh, that they would see your good works and glorify God. And I used to think of good works as a person willing to be in the nursery on Sunday morning and or teach the middle school boy Sunday school class, and those are good things. And sometimes that's very sacrificial. But the good works in the context of Scripture is meeting needs of people who are hurting. And this is doing that. It's making peace and doing good. And I see God blessing that simple application of biblical principle. And I've had astonishing stories come out of each. In 
I love telling the story in, in Charlotte, and I'll tell as many of these as you have time for me to tell, but in Charlotte, the very first one that Friday night, uh, I, uh, I'll i just call him uh, Ben, just to protect his privacy, but Ben's mother's house was one of the houses we were working on. Ben was around 50, and after I had shared a little bit about why we were doing it, I sat down and I, uh, beside him, he said, I appreciate what you're trying to do. But honestly, I've, I've had a lot of bad experiences with police officers. And I said, I'm really sorry to hear that because the vast majority of police officers that I know are really good people who would uh, bend over backwards to help you. And he said, but that's not been my experience. So the next day as we're working with, with Chief Putney and he's, he's doing some of the work, I, I took him around to meet some of, uh, of the folks, including his mother, the three homeowners. And after... We left her house. I said, if you've got a moment, I'd like for you to meet somebody. Uh, ben has is this lady's son, and he's had uh, some struggles with police officers. And Chief Putney said, well, I have too, so we'll compare notes. <laughs> and so um, he went and started talking with Ben, and they chatted for about five minutes and laughed, and, and uh, it was a great time. And then Chief had to leave. And later that afternoon, I saw Ben, and I said, so what do you think? And he said, Rev... They call me Rev. Instead of Reverend Rebel, it's just Rev. He said, Rev, Charlotte is blessed with some of the finest officers. These are just some amazing people here. In less than 24 hours, his whole perspective on law enforcement officers was radically transformed, 180 degrees. One more story. In Stanford, uh, there was a, a lady, wonderful lady that I had talked with in, in the past events. And that Saturday afternoon... At, towards the end, she came up and said, Rev, Rev, i got to tell you something. I said, what? She said, I was working next to a guy, and I thought he was a building contractor that uh, had been hired to help us. But I looked, and he had a SWAT cap on. And I asked him, are you a member of the SWAT team? And he said, yes, ma'am, I am. And she said, but you're not mean. And he said, no, ma'am, I'm not. She <laughs> said, I thought all SWAT guys were mean. And he laughed and said, that's only when we're in specific situations where it's necessary. And the officer that she is talking about was is one of the the most lovable and funniest guys she'd ever meet. But at the end of it, I'll never forget it. She said, Rev, that totally changed my whole perspective on police. And we're seeing that, that kind of response time and time again. All right. We're uh, talking to, I guess it was... Previous to this, it was the Reverend John Ravel. Now it's just Rev, chatting, <laughs> chatting with Rev. So we're going to take a little break. We'll come back in 90 seconds. the show. I'm so glad to be talking to Rev. John Ravel. He's uh, a chaplain with several police departments in, uh, out east. And I want to get to your book, John, because we could talk police the whole time, but I do want to talk about Yet I Will Rejoice, the testimonies of five Bible personalities who survived in times of doom and despair. This is book one in a series you're working on. That's right. The first book, uh, God Alone, the Testimony of Rehab, uh, these, each of the five books are written in first-person format. It's uh, each character is telling their story from their own perspective. And so admittedly, it is a level of uh, uh, historical fiction. 
But I am uh, I am com- a committed student to God's Word, and I've been very, very careful and particular to make sure everything in there lines up with the historical and the archaeological uh, data that's there. But it is... Uh, this book is Rahab telling of her own experience of growing up in a, a home where she was sexually abused, which is part of the Canaanite culture, and the the potential doom that she faced on the one hand with the Israelites attacking the city of Jericho. On the other hand, if she were discovered to have uh, harbored the spies, what it would cost her and her entire family. And so it's, it's presented in a, a very active and uh, uh, vibrant uh, manner so that it's – I've had people go online and post reviews saying that it's, uh, it's like reading a, an action thriller. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's the intent, and I think it's wrong to make God's Word boring because it's not. Right. But in the course of it, we come to find out some of the things that God did that were miraculous but were gracious and – And all of these lead to lessons that demonstrate even in the face of horrific scenarios, potential doom and despair, God is faithful. He has a plan, and he's going to accomplish that plan. And sometimes that plan plan may seem illogical to us, and we may not prefer what's unfolding, but God demonstrates over and over again that he's faithful and he can be trusted. I started on this series almost 20 years ago, and I, I set it aside. But as COVID started to unfold, I thought, you know, this may be time to resurrect it. Resurrect it. And then after that, things have started to get even worse. And so uh, my first goal, my first objective in this is to provide a resource for God's people that will provide a measure of hope and encouragement in times of of uh, dis- potential despair. Now, the second objective is we started Lifeline Press uh, in order to publish this, and the goal is that revenue from this will help provide chaplains for first responders in uh, Connecticut. So uh, this is also designed to be a source of, of revenue. All right, let's talk a little bit about Rahab. I mean, it's when I look at the style of this book, it's a little almost like you're you got your hands on Rahab's diary too, <laughs> telling her story. That's exactly uh, the it's, style. It's pretty riveting. Well, I'm, I'm glad you you think of it that way. Yeah. So, uh, just let, to tell the listeners um, just about some of her her testimony of pain and and fear and bitterness and how God helped transform all that. It's important to realize that the Canaanite culture followed the the uh, ancient uh, uh, religious practices related to Baal and in some of the fertility cults. And if you read in the Old Testament uh, in Leviticus, you will see some of the prohibitions of uh, family members not having sex with, with uh, family members. And that was because that was the Canaanite practice. And so it was not uncommon for uh, girls, uh, adolescent girls, uh, to be used uh, as part of the process to try and get bales, the bale gods, to bless the crops and to protect the city. And also the, the practice of sacrificing the firstborn child to the pagan god Molech. Yeah, horrific. Uh, yes. Yeah. And 
this is designed to help the reader understand the reality of what that kind of practice did to people. It destroyed hearts. It destroyed destroyed souls. It destroyed bodies. It destroyed lives. And so she shares of how it first happened to her growing up. Uh, It imagines the scenario where uh, her father owned the inn in the wall of Jericho but became ill, and so she had to take over the responsibility of it. But in order to supplement the income, it meant that she needed to be a prostitute for the traders who would come in. And so her life was relegated to uh, to overseeing an inn in which she was was the object of uh, disgusting lusts and, and uh, corrupt minds uh, and the despair until two men who walk in who don't look like the typical Canaanite uh, traders and have a different appearance about them. And she all along has heard, they all, everybody in Canaan had heard about what Yahweh had done to the Egyptians and how Yahweh had brought his people through the wilderness. And they heard the prophecies that the Israelites were going to be coming. And she wondered if in fact, these two were Israelites and I won't tell the whole story. I'll let people keep read going. It from this. this is great. You're <laughs> doing such a great job, John. I'd, I'd much prefer people to read the book and see what happens when okay. when she I appreciate uh, encounters that. those two uh, those two spies. All right. Well, um, when you first set out to do this, um, obviously because you have your, a love for God's word, um, you found out because this book is it's how many pages is it it's not very long it's about 90 pages i call it it's a a quick read that provides hope for unsettled hearts and troubled times yes and i think the timing of this is quite interesting because one of the things i hear over and over is listeners are looking for hope and encouragement in desperate times in times when they feel uncertainty and they feel god's love is certain but they feel like the circumstances around their life are uncertain and there's a sense of despair. Yeah. This book, at the end of each book, the character, in this case Rahab, provides uh, four lessons that she learned as she reflects back on what God did, what Yahweh did, four lessons that uh, that stood out in her mind. And then each book is followed up with uh, a discussion guide. It's uh, This is designed to be able to be used in small groups, but also... The last couple of questions in that discussion guide open the door for gospel conversations if somebody wants to use this to reach out to people who maybe don't know the Lord, mm-hmm. and it opens the door for that. Yeah. What is your uh, concern for the nation right now? I'm concerned that we have, we're reaping the consequences of our own misguided affections. As a nation, we have devolved into so many factions, warring factions, where the the typical mindset is I'm on the right side and my leaders are all righteous and they're on the bad side and their leaders are all evil. And the only way to to deal with that is to fight with them or to accuse or or to hate. That's not being applied by one group of people. It's across the it's political, it's spiritual, uh denominational, it's religious. We're seeing that. And so, so so much of the tension that exists in the country today is related to that. I also think that so much of of the problem that we're experiencing is the result of the racism that uh, 
um, has that was part of part and parcel of the slavery that goes back 400 years. A lot of people don't realize the level of atrocities that were forced upon African Americans even after slavery was abolished with the lynchings and with the Jim Crow laws and with the massacres in so many cities. And so much of our nation, uh, we didn't even acknowledge that as wrong. And I don't think, I was sharing this with some loved ones last night, I don't think a nation can slaughter 50 million plus babies through abortion and escape the, the spiritual consequences of it. I don't think a nation can have that kind of track record with abusing people and not addressing it, mm-hmm. not recognizing it as wrong, and not confessing it as sin and asking for forgiveness, and not have consequences. And so I think a lot of these dynamics have come together, and we're experiencing the natural consequences of those kinds of behaviors. Rev, how do we uh, uh, care for officers? How do we show care and concern for them? Obviously pray for them, but what else? Um, some practical things. It's Officers sometimes feel like the whole world is against them. Mm-hmm. I have encouraged people that if you see an officer working a side job uh, on the street to roll down your window and thank them and saying, we stand with you. That goes a long way because I'm hearing officers here uh, talk about that all the day, uh, all the time. It's, it's great when a church or some individuals get together and purchase lunch cops. One of the things that I like about cops, because I can identify it, uh, they're really happy with food. You know, food and I have been friends for a long time, and and cops really like food. And so when, when a church or uh, some individuals go to the local deli or, uh, or restaurant and buy lunch for the precinct and deliver it and say, we want you to know that we appreciate you, we're praying for you, we stand behind you, that goes a long way. And then I would say, I'd add to that, the pray aspect, Jesus said, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Mm -hmm. I think we've got the whole thing wrong when people disagree with us, uh, we like to fight them. I think pray for Pray, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yeah. And there is a, a real call for Christians to you know, let down the armor uh, in a physical sense and see those with whom they disagree and pray for them. You know, and, and that applies in, in the communities. Uh, I had one radio guy say, what about the reality of African-American young men who have uh, faced higher levels of, of uh, injustice. And I said, um, I grew up in Mississippi during the Mississippi burning days. Mm-hmm. My dad was a, a pastor. Uh, he was a, an active civil rights advocate, and he was a bit of a character. He was uh, a veteran Marine in the South Pacific in World War II. Oh, wow. And he was actually part of the raider detachment that took Mount Suribachi for the raising of the flag on Iwo Jima. And uh, so he was... He was a hardcore guy. Uh, He was a cop when I was born, but he became a pastor, and he wasn't your typical pastor. And we lived in Tupelo, Mississippi at the time, and the the local sheriff was known to be a high-ranking member of the Klan. Wow. And he called my dad a couple of times and said, you better get out of town because we're coming to get you. He laughed, said, if you think you're man enough, I'll be glad to meet you in five minutes. 
Uh, he said that? Oh, yeah. He said, he said if that. If you're man enough, I'll meet you in five minutes? Yeah. He says, if you think you're man enough, I'll meet you outside my house in five minutes. And the guy never showed up. Wow. Uh, but I saw firsthand the reality of the evil of racism, so I know it exists. But even in situations where God's people are at the wrong end of of justice, the call is to love your enemies and pray for them that persecute you, pray for those that persecute you. And so even when we find ourselves in a situation where we are experiencing injustices, the biblical response isn't to destroy the opposition, it's to love and to pray and even be willing to serve and following Jesus' model, die for those who would wish us harm. So if if someone sees a police officer as a potential adversary, my encouragement is start praying for those officers. Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And he set the ultimate example of sacrificing himself for people who were enemies. I know how good that would feel. I mean, if someone sees me doing a side uh, job, please roll your window down and say, hey, I like your radio show. That would be nice. <laughs> I would encourage them to do that. Okay, let me let me know when that happens, okay? <laughs> All right. Reverend uh, John Ravel has been my guest. Uh, chaplain and also author of a series of books. The first one is Yet I Will Rejoice, the Testimonies of Five Bible Personalities Who Survived in Times of Doom and Despair. Book one is God Alone, the Testimony of Rahab. John, thanks for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate it. All right, we'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.